to Daniel, you've gone too far. Okay? Right at the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37, the question that we're looking at today is Israel's future. And I want to show you something that Paul knew. He knew Israel's future. How did he know? God's word. God's word in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 37. The prophet, verse 1, says, The hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he caused me to pass by them all, and behold, there was very many in the open valley, and indeed they were very dry. And he said to me, verse 3, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, Lord God, you know. Again he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear. The word of the Lord. Now, jump down to verse 11. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They indeed say, Our bones are dry. Our hope is lost. And we ourselves were cut off. There, Therefore prophesy and say to them, verse 12, Thus says the Lord God, Behold my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord and I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. I will put my spirit within you and you shall live I will place you in your own land, and then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. So as we go to the book of Romans, chapter 11, a little bit of review. Paul's talking about Israel. He's talking about Gentiles. How does this all work out? Well, Paul knew, according to God's word, that there's a future for Israel, but he's explaining now what's happening, what's going on in the world right now. Chapter 9, he talked about Israel's past, and God had chosen a nation to be his people. As I thought about that, it wasn't only to show the world who he was, the living God, It was also to provide a historical context for Jesus Christ, God's Son, to come into this world. Chapter 10, we looked at Israel today, God's present dealing with Israel. And Paul let us know that whether you're a Jew or whether you're a Gentile, you're all invited to be his chosen people. To Israel, he says, Verse 21, chapter 10, All day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So I stretched my hands out to you, literally, on the cross of Calvary. Jesus did that for his people. And nationally, 
Israel rejected him. John 1.11, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. And now we come to chapter 11, Israel's future. Because God had rejected, because Israel, excuse me, had rejected God's pleadings to them, nationally they rejected him. The question is, so what about them? What about their future? Is there any hope at all? Paul's answer, verse 1. Chapter 11, verse 1 of Romans. I say then, has God cast away his people? And the idea there, are they cast away forever? Is it hopeless? Is there no hope? Paul's answer, certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. So Paul answers this question, first of all, with his own testimony and the fact that, hey, I'm a Jew, through and through. God's put the nation on the bench, but those who belong to him are known by him, called by him, whether they're Jew or Gentile, are going to belong to him. John 1.12, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those that believe on his name. So verse 2. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Whoa, there's that mystery of God's foreknowledge. If you completely understand that, <laughs> you're better than me. But if I could understand God completely, then he wouldn't be a God that I could worship. Well, Paul says he foreknew. Paul's first argument, it's very personal. God knew my heart. God knew that I would respond to Jesus when he stopped me on that road to Damascus. He knew that I would pour out my heart to him once I really understood who he was. His second argument, though, that he goes into, goes back a ways, and he's, he's going to the Old Testament and to Elijah's account in the Old Testament. We go on with verse 2. Or do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, They've killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars. And I alone, I'm the only one left. And they, they're seeking my life now. Well, if you know the story, Elijah just went through an incredible time on the top of the mountain. 400 prophets of Baal. One prophet of God. And God came through for Elijah in a, just a spectacular way. He stood up against them. But then after it was all over, one woman, the wicked Queen Jezebel, came after him. And he runs for his life. And he cried out, woe is me. I'm all alone. I'm the only one who still believes in you, Lord. I mean, he's... It's crazy, kind of. Well, look at your notes, number one. In our nation and world we live in today, can't we kind of 
end up feeling a little bit the same way. But Paul points out we're never alone. God always has a remnant of believers. And Paul's point, even among the Jews. That's why it's so important as we've been praying for persecuted Christians across the world. They're not alone. And we want them to know that they're not alone. And we love them and support them and pray for them and help in any way that we can. Well, back to the text. Chapter 11, verse 4. What does the divine response say to him? So when he's moaning and groaning and complaining, how did God respond to him? He says, Elijah, I've reserved for myself 7,000 men. And that's not counting the women and the children who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Verse 5, even, even so then, at this present time, now Paul's using that for an example. He says, same thing's going on today. At this present time, there's a remnant according to the election of grace. Today, there are Jewish men and women who know Jesus as their Messiah, their Savior. Even in this congregation, it's incredible what God is doing. Sometimes it seems like a skeleton crew, but God always has his people. Don't ever think that he's abandoned you. There's more of us than you realize. And everybody who belonged to God in Elijah's day, in Paul's day, or today, Paul points this out, were saved by grace. God's mercy and God's grace. Verse 6, And if by grace, then it is no longer of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it's no longer grace, otherwise work is no longer work. Well, what are you saying, Paul? That's a little mixed up there. Well, look at your notes, number two. Paul's literally here crystal clear. Honest, he is. All true believers of all ages, past, present, and future, are saved by grace, not works. That's what he's getting across. Grace is grace. Works are works. They're like oil and water. It's approaching God in two completely different ways. Work is what you do, I should say, is what you try to do to measure up and get God's favor. It can never happen. Grace, praise God, is what Jesus did for us on the cross of Calvary. When he cried out, it is finished. His work was done. Our sins forgiven for eternity. Grace unlocks the door into God's kingdom. Works do nothing but slam it shut. Well, what then? Verse 7. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have attained it, and the rest were blinded. So Paul here is dividing the nation of Israel in his time and in our day into two groups. The one group is the believing small minority. 
the elect. And the second group, the blinded, huge majority as a nation. He goes on, verse 8. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, ears that they should not hear. And Paul says, to this very day. And as we look around in our world, we see this in our day. He's bringing up a concept called a spirit of stupor. To me, this is a very frightening concept. So, is God being unfair to the Jewish nation in doing this? I don't believe so. I believe God only blinds those who insist upon being blind. You see, if you harden your heart over and over and over, God will eventually let you have your way. You don't want to go there. You want to sleep? He'll even sing you a lullaby. <laughs> it's a frightening place to be. And the Jewish nation, spirit of stupor, it was predicted in the Old Testament. And Paul was a master scholar of the Old Testament. He's bringing this out. Next, Paul quotes from Psalm 69. In Romans 11, verses 9 and 10. And David says, Psalm 69, Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. So David prophesied in Psalm 69, Let their table become a snare. As I've thought about that, it reminds me in Jewish families every year at Passover, the Passover table clearly picked, it pictures Jesus' body, his broken body, the cup of blood, his shed blood on the cross, all written about, predicted in their Old Testament, but they just can't see Jesus said, this cup is a new covenant of my, of my blood. And Jesus said, this body is broken for you. And the Jews stare at these symbols, but they don't see. Is there no hope? Paul asks, verse 11. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? And what he's getting at, they should fall for eternity? And he says, again, certainly not. So stop at that verse right there. There's a national Jewish spirit of stupor. But Paul knows there's hope. He knows that their spiritual eyes can be opened. He knows that it takes love, it takes prayer, it takes something that He's going to introduce us to next a very interesting kind of evangelism. So Paul, as he finishes verse 11, he says, but through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So the Jews nationally have rejected Jesus, but God was still 
reaching out to them and is still reaching out to them. And Paul introduces a new kind of evangelism. Well, what kind of evangelism is that? Jealousy evangelism. You heard of crusade evangelism, door-to-door, street evangelism, literature, lifestyle evangelism. In your notes, number three, God created a new form of evangelism just to reach his people, the Jews. Jealousy evangelism. God saved the Gentiles to make the Jews jealous and desire salvation for themselves. My senior year in high school, you're not going to believe this, but Tornado Tally was on the bench. Whoa! Eighth grade, freshman, sophomore, junior years, played every game. We got a new coach. And for the first time, the first game, I was sitting on the bench. Coach, I earned this position. I've worked hard all these years to have this position. The coach said, on the bench, Tally. He didn't see it my way. Whoa, that next week in practice, the blood, the sweat, the dust was flying. Whoa. Finally, when I got back in the game, the rest of the season, whoa, my benching was much needed and effective motivation for me. But that's what God is doing to the Jewish people. He's put them on the bench. That's his strategy with them right now. He's exalted us Gentiles and the predominantly Gentile church who served Jehovah God, their God, to make them jealous. We have a salvation, we have a love relationship with Jehovah God through Jesus Christ, His Son. And God's trying to get through to them. And Paul goes on, he's talking about this. Now if their fall is riches for the world, verse 12, and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. So Paul's thinking, when they come back, well, things are going to just be so awesome what God's going to do through his people. Verse 13, For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry, but... I have one other purpose in doing that, not just reaching Gentiles. If by any means, verse 14, I may provoke to jealousy those who are my, my flesh, my nationality, and some of them open their eyes and come to Jesus and save some of them. Now understand how much the Jews look down on the Gentiles. They're going, the Gentiles should be on the bench, not us. The Gentiles, they don't deserve to be saved in any way. In their chosen nation pride, they considered Gentiles truly, completely unclean. 
if you came in contact, if a Jew came in contact with a Gentile, and especially if they were touched by one, they had to be ceremonially cleansed or they couldn't even go into the temple. They could not were not allowed to enter the home of a Gentile to eat at the same table as a Gentile. Peter runs into this when God was opening the door for the Gentiles to come to Jesus and using Peter. Acts 11, 2 through 3. And he comes back, he goes up to Jerusalem, and those who were of the circumcision, they contended with him. And they go, you went into an uncircumcised man's house and you even ate with him. So Paul's playing on this animosity, this, this pride, this Jewish pride. And why should the lowly Gentiles be recipients of God's blessing while you Jews stay on the bench, outside looking in? And so here's Paul. He's flaunting the salvation and the open door through Jesus Christ to the Gentiles to provoke the Jews to jealousy. Know this, your notes number four. Paul is convinced that Israel's stumbling and spirit of stupor is temporary, is temporary. Verse 15. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, that this opens the door for everyone to come to Jesus, what will their acceptance be but life? From the dead, dry bones coming to life by the word of God. For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. The salvation that we Gentiles and the primarily Gentile church receive today, it was first offered to God's people, the Jews. They're the root. Gentiles were only grafted in, were grafted in branches. Paul's convinced that Israel's jealousy evangelism, it'll one day wake them up. As we went through the book of Revelation, that's exactly what we saw, if you remember. Who were the 144,000 evangelists sent across the whole earth? Well, they were what I call Jewish Billy Grahams. And there was angels proclaiming the gospel. And there were two Jewish witnesses in Jerusalem proclaiming the gospel. One day, the Jewish people will help bring about what Paul says, the reconciling of the whole world. Verse 17. And if some of the branches were broken off and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them and with them became a partaker of the root and the fatness of the olive tree, Gentile, do not boast against the branches. Stop there for a second. Before you or we came to Christ, we were just a wild thing. A wild olive tree. The Jews were the natural root and branches. 
They were planted as seedlings in God's garden. The Gentiles were wild offshoots. We lacked the biblical foundation, the spiritual upbringing. Gentiles could only be grafted in to God's root, God's family. And of course it's through God's Son, Jesus Christ. So Paul says, Mr. Gentile, be careful about your attitude, about your pride, about who you are in Christ. Look at the rest of verse 18. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. So Paul's worried about reverse discrimination here. In Paul's day, the religious Jew, they were very prejudiced against, as we talked about, against the Gentile. Now Paul fears the Gentiles are going to turn right around and have the same attitude against the Jewish people. Let's not forget the Jews brought the world God's word through them, both the written word and the living word. Jesus Christ came through the nation of Israel He was a Jew. Paul saying, you Gentiles owe the Jews a debt of eternal gratitude. Never forget that. As Christians, we need to love, support, pray for, and lovingly witness to Jewish people, both at home and in Israel itself. Verse 19. You will say then, well, (laughs) branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well, that's true, well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off. And you stand by faith. Do not be haughty or proud, but be fearful, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell. Severity. But towards you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. So Paul is saying we need to learn from the Jews. The Jews as a nation failed and fell because of unbelief. They rejected nationally as a nation Jesus as their Messiah Romans 9.32 for they stumbled at the stumbling stone and that was Jesus they turned a deaf ear towards Jesus his words of life his miracles his death on the cross his resurrection from the grave even as Peter stood in, in their midst and shared with them that Jesus had risen from the grave, just head up to David's tomb. Head up, see David up there and see that David is still in his tomb. This scripture is about Jesus. His tomb is empty. Go take a look. And the Spirit fell upon the church that day. And there were many Jews that were saved. 
but the majority still rejected Christ. Now listen carefully. Don't miss this. This is, these are some verses that as I was a young believer, there was someone from a church family that felt very strongly about their doctrine of you could lose your salvation unless you worked hard to hang on to it. And I really struggled with that for a while. So don't miss this, what I'm going to share next. Paul's not talking about salvation of individual Christians here, but the position of national Israel and the predominantly position of a Gentile church, a denomination, a group of people who believe in a certain way or don't believe in a certain way in the program of God today. Wearsby, who I really appreciate as a Bible teacher, shares this about this passage. Again, remember that the theme of chapter 11 is national and not personal. He says, God will never break off true believers from their salvation, for there is no separation between Christ and his people. And we went through that in Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39. Jesus said this, and never forget what Jesus says. When Jesus says it, I believe it, that settles it. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand, Jesus says. I love being in the hand of my Savior. Don't you? Amen. Look at number five in your notes. Paul's warning the predominantly Gentile church, the church, the group or denomination that turns a deaf ear towards Jesus' words of life, towards his redemptive death on the cross, towards his resurrection from the grave. If you're part of a group like that, as a group you're in extreme danger. You also will be cut off, Paul is saying. And McGee, J. Vernon McGee, a teacher, that, a Bible teacher I love, talks about this. And this is what he says. Since God did not share, spare the nation Israel when they apostatized, the argument is that he will not spare an apostate church. I am more and more convinced that the church which is based on a philosophy or a ritual, the type of church that was designated in the third chapter of the book of Revelation as the church of Laodicea, that church will be cut off from the rapture and will go into the great tribulation period. And Jesus spoke to the church in Laodicea. I know your words, Revelation 3:15 and 16 and 19 and 20. You're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were hot or cold, cold or hot. So then, <clears throat> because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, 
I will vomit you out of my mouth. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore be zealous and repent. Turn back to me. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, and I love this, I will come in. Dine with him. Fellowship. Be with him. In contrast, in the book of Revelation, there's another church. The church in Philadelphia. Because you have kept my command to persevere. Because you've followed me and trusted me and given me your heart. I will also keep you from the hour of trial, the great tribulation, which will come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. This is the church that will be taken to be with Christ at the time of the rapture, I believe. And the rapture event that happens in this world that will happen at the end of the church age that we're a part of today. Paul Nick introduces this mysterious event as we look at these next verses. Kind of fascinating. Verse 25. Paul says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Paul's talking, I believe, about the church age that we're now a part of. A mystery in the Bible is something that we can only figure out by God just revealing to us what's going to happen. We can't find it through investigation. We wouldn't know it if God didn't reveal it to us. A mystery is a sacred secret and God lets his people know at just the right time. God begins salvation with the Jews I believe he'll end salvation with the Jews. But today, we're in the gap in between. The Jews as a nation have been broken off. God is grafting in a predominantly Gentile church. Your notes in number six. Notice Israel's blindness is temporary. But when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, God will re-engage with the Hebrew nation, with his people. I believe the expression, the fullness of the Gentiles, refers to a specific number. The final Gentile person that opens their heart to Jesus, I think at that moment, the Lord says, the trumpet will blow and he'll call out our names, and he will come in the clouds and snatch us away. The predominantly Gentile church who's turned to Jesus and trusts in him will escape this world and escape the great tribulation. First Thessalonians 4 speaks of this. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and we who are alive and remain 
shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Worship team, come on up. So when that happens, what happens back on earth? Well, God will re-engage with his people. And that's the mystery that Paul shares next. Look at verse 26. At that moment, during that time frame, the great tribulation time frame, and so all Israel will be saved. One day, all the Jews will be Jews for Jesus. Well, that'll be next time. We'll look at that. But think of that valley of dry bones. Doesn't look like God's working with Israel as a nation at all today. They've rejected their Savior. But our God is so awesome and so powerful. He told the prophet, speak the word to my people. There will be a day. Do you ever feel just dry inside? If you don't know Jesus, he wants to pour out that living water into your heart to give you a new life. Or if you're just kind of drifting as a believer in Christ, today Jesus wants to speak the word to you and you come alive. Just like he will someday with the whole nation of Israel. They will literally come alive. But that's what we can have today through Christ as you open your heart to Him. As we close with this song, just make it a prayer. Ask the Lord to to just fill you anew with His Spirit, His life, His hope, and His future. Let's close our service worshiping Jesus. Stand with me. Jesus stood up in the midst of the congregation and he cried out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. And out of his innermost being will flow a river, a torrent of living water. Feel dry? Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. We're going to close our service this morning just with a word of prayer. Uh, Dennis Burdine Chapel grandparents tragic accident this week if you haven't heard we just want to lift up the Chapel family and their loved ones let's pray Lord times like this we just cry out to you we ask for your peace for your power in our lives to sustain us. We lift up the chapel family, the tragic accident that took place. 
We know the little one is with you by your grace and your mercy. According to your word, we just ask for you to bear up our dear friends, family, part of this church family this week and in the weeks to come. Lord, thank you for your word and your promises. And thank you that, Jesus, you loved us so much that you came, you became one of us. You came for the very purpose of dying in our place that our sins could be forgiven forever. You rose from the grave to give us new life and hope and a future. Oh, how we love you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. As we close our service, we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. May the Lord richly bless you this week. So good to see everybody. God bless.